0: Couple of comments before I open in prayer. First of all, I don't really have anything profound to say about September the 11th anniversary. It's not because it, it's not an important day, it was a tremendous, life altering thing for us 10 years ago. For those of us that were adults and can remember it, I really don't have anything profound to say other than to go on and, and unpack God's Word on the greatness of Christ. I, I think it'd be appropriate, as Morris prayed, uh, as we open in prayer, to pray for those families that are remembering the loss. And um, I just don't even know what to say. It was a, a shocking thing. I, I'm surprised, though, that it doesn't happen every day. You know, it's only God's grace. And the protective presence, sort of a... Um, dampening of evil influence of the Holy Spirit in the world today that it doesn't happen every day because this is a fallen world and um, I'm just thankful that I'm thankful that he works all things according to his will and that he works all things for good for those that are called according to his purpose so that is an all thing I can look at and say that's an all thing I don't know how God's going to be glorified through that, and I don't know how his people are going to be blessed through that, but somehow he did something through that and is doing something through that that wouldn't have been accomplished otherwise. He wasn't snoozing. Satan didn't win anything. Satan doesn't scratch his behind except for permission from the living God. So put that in perspective. God wasn't snoozing. Let's start with prayer I, too, want to pray about something that is, you know, I usually don't care what people think about my preaching, but some Sundays I do. And it's just, I wish I were a machine, (laughs) just a preaching machine. You get up here and turn me on, and I'm preaching, and turn it off, you know, after 20 minutes. (laughs) Yes, that would be good. Glory. But I'm not, and I bring my humanity in the pulpit, and sometimes more than others, and for some reason, I just care a little bit too much about what people think of my preaching this morning, so I'm calling that into the light so we can kill it and move on, so I'm going to pray. God, this morning, we want to uh, remember those families that are really dealing with probably like it was yesterday, the events of 10 years ago. I'm to pray that you'll be glorified through that. I pray that the kingdom will, be, will have been, that we'll find when we see you in glory, that the kingdom will have been expanded in some way through that, more so than it would have been had it not happened. I'm thankful that at least for a moment a country prayed and hunkered down in you. And Lord, while I would never pray for that sort of thing to happen again, I do pray for the effect of it, whatever it would take that people would call out to you um, in earnestness, sincerity, that for a moment we would be attentive to how fragile life is and wouldn't just think and live like we're invincible. Pray for the effect of it. Pray for the effect of it, especially in God's people, that we live like you're returning or your son is returning tomorrow, responsive, with staff in hand, with shoes on and our loins girded ready to move out i pray that we live light and responsive and attentive lord this morning also i want to pray for another brother and his his wife and another church i want to pray for commerce community church uh, for david ferguson and whitney thankful for the ministry that you have to them and through them and through the other elders of commerce community church and we're thankful for our shared DNA as um, a church plant and a sister church at this point. We're thankful for men that we've walked with that are walking with you now in a different location. Lord, we pray for your glory there. Pray that those who aren't walking with the people and aren't hearing the exposition of the word week by week, that you will draw them, that they will gather and they will enjoy you out loud and they will become equipped to be salty and aromatic in commerce, Campbell, whatever surrounding area out there, and all of that for your glory, I pray that even this morning that you 're using David to expose the truth that 's first run him through, I'm thankful for uh, the partnership that we have with this church, Lord, in these next few minutes i 'm um, just asking you to speak in spite of me if you need to um, or want to Uh, Humiliate me, pour me out, just whatever you have to do to get me out of the way. And I'm, as I confess to your people this morning, I feel in the way. And I pray that you'll just remove that um, obstacle, that you'll speak to your people this morning and show us even more so who Christ is. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We're continuing our journey in the first few verses. This morning we're going to be finishing up verse 3. For those of you that are visiting or those of you who um, have never been here before or have only been here a few times, this is all we got. We really don't have, um, I guess, sentimental stories or um, videos, and I don't frown on any of those things. I know the Lord can even use those, but it seems like the best thing that He has for us is to walk in His Word and unpack it and try and walk in what we've heard. So that's all we've got. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, what, all that we have is a lot. Um, I think part of the reason that I'm struggling this morning, both with what someone might think of my preaching, it's conflicting with uh, feeling like I'm a elementary school kid That's not a bad thing, kids. I'm just feeling young um, and sort of um, ill-equipped to expose these truths. They're just so massive and um, feeling real inadequate. So, maybe that's probably good. (laughs) That's probably good because they're massive. Colossal would be a good word. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. This morning, we're going to gather up that last little sentence there to sort of come together with these first three verses. On After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. These first three verses sort of provide seven, not sort of, they do, seven awesome things about Jesus. The first thing, I love that it's seven too. just sounds like either the writer was, he must have been buddies with John. (laughs) Because John loves the number seven and the fullness of it. Seven just seems appropriate. The first thing that we learned about Jesus is that he is heir. He has been appointed heir of all things. Remember, that's heiress tense, as in that's a done deal. That happened in the past. Heiress means past tense and completed. He was appointed heir of all things. That's the first thing that we learned about him. Secondly, we learned that he is creator, also heiress tense, that he created. He was the effective creator while the father was the ultimate creator. Jesus didn't find his beginnings in Bethlehem. Bethlehem found its beginnings in him. He was the effective Creator, heir, creator. Third, we learned last week that He's the radiance of the glory of God. We move to present tense verbs at this for present present tense realities. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is God shining forth, or effulging. Remember that weird word that we considered last week. A new word is a good thing because it's a parking place for a new thought. Don't be afraid of new words. Effulging is a great word for that. The glory shining forth. We learned also last week, present tense, that he is the exact imprint of God. He is the stamp of God. He is not a likeness, but perfectly disclosing God. He's not God diluted. He is full strength, full test God. And then the third thing that's also present tense that we learned last week is that He is sustainer. As the Father said, let there be light, the master workman says, let there be September 12th. We are that dependent on Jesus' involvement. He is the one in whom all things are held together. Let there be a job that I have to go to tomorrow. Let there be a a wife that wakes up and takes breath with you in the morning and eats breakfast with you. Let there be breath and consciousness right now. Jesus spoke those into existence as the master workman. He is the sustainer, present tense. So, we've had two past tense or heiress tense, uh, heir and creator. Then we moved to some present tense, the radiance of the glory of God. This is the third thing, the exact imprint of his nature, and the sustainer or the upholder of the universe. And now we move back to two more aorist, our past tense. It's just poetic how the Hebrew preacher, writer, builds sort of a pyramid or a chiasm here, just in the tenses of these verbs. The last two things that we're going to consider of Christ, both aorist tenses, He He is Redeemer and He is ruler. That's where we're going today. To round out the seven. He is Redeemer and ruler. We're going to unpack those things, but I want to first turn to Psalm 110. I want to first this morning consider these two realities sort of in context. I'm going to give it a new parking place, a new word, and I'm going to call it a serious contra-expectation. I bet you hadn't used that word this week, or this year maybe. I don't think I ever had before the sermon. A serious contra expectation. Psalm two, you remember from last week and the week prior. Psalm two and Psalm one hundred and ten are sort of our uh, go-to psalms to help us decipher Hebrews chapter one. Psalm two, you remember, had dealt with the royal son. Psalm one hundred and ten deals with the royal priest. And here Psalm 110 is quoted in this passage about being seated at the right hand of majesty on high. It's quoted again later in the first chapter in verse 13, almost verbatim. of making the the nations your footstool, that sort of image. So we're going to go to Psalm 110, and I think what I'm going to do, it's just such a rich psalm. I think what I'm going to do next week is preach just Psalm 110, and then we'll come back to Hebrews the week after that. So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Psalm 110 this morning, but I want to read it, and I want you to listen for the tone of the psalm. Just listen to the images, and listen to the verbs, and listen to the tone of the psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Now, watch some of the verbs. Rule In the midst of your enemies, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. This is about like a warrior priest. It's something that we've never really seen before, but the Jewish mind would have had a concept of this. In fact, Zechariah brought together the two concepts of warrior or king, victor, and priest. And this this psalm embodies those images. "'Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. "'From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. "'The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, "'you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek.'" The shadowy figure that's mentioned later on the book of Hebrews. "'The Lord is at your right hand. "'He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. "'He will execute judgment among the nations.'" Filling them with corpses. It's going to be an interesting sermon next week. Have you ever heard Sermon on 110? I haven't. Sermon on the nations being filled with corpses. It's right there. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up his head. This is, interestingly enough, one of the most cited psalms in our New Testament. I didn't know that. One of the most cited psalms in our New Testament. It's cited in the Gospels, in Acts, in Paul's letters. It's cited, obviously, in Hebrews and also in Peter's letters. This is a very important psalm and why we're going to engage it next week exclusively. I'll tell you right now, it's a coronation psalm celebrating the enthronement of a royal figure, and the imagery is about enemies being vanquished, and you can't help but enjoy the victory. I was thinking about the image of him just drinking by the brook, or from the brook, by the way. I don't know why this came to mind. I don't think of this when I think of Jesus, but maybe I should think of images like this. I thought of General Maximus Decimus Meridius. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The movie Gladiator, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. As a stirring moment in that movie for those of you that have seen it. Just imagine this sort of guy after just whipping some serious behind, blood coming up his hand from his sword, blood splattered on his face, going down to the brook to drink some water. The victor, sticking his face in air, just gathering it up as the victor. That's the image I have here of this royal priest, this warrior priest. And this imagery is in keeping with the first five things we've learned about Jesus. Air. Heir of all things, creator, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and the sustainer, our upholder of the universe. You hear those five things, and you hear warrior. We see a cosmic Lord here that just ought to make us, just give us some awe. Anybody that's lost their awe, engage those five things, and you will find it. That he speaks tomorrow into existence, now that's power. That's awe by His mighty Word He speaks tomorrow into existence. You consider the first five things, and man, you have to be blown away. But here's the reality. Contextually, this next phrase here, after making purification for sins, could read contextually, yet made purification for sins. The guys that study the Greek, those are the, that's some of the things that I was reading there where they're saying, it's almost like the writer, the preacher of Hebrews is saying, look at these awesome five things, but yet, look at this next one. It's a contra expectation. The heir, the creator, the radiance of the glory of God, the imprint of the glory of God, the sustainer is now making purification Wait a second. That doesn't make sense. It's a contra expectation that we've got to take in. We found him Lord over the cosmos, and now we see him stooping to pick up the trash? It doesn't make sense. It's a contra expectation. The writer has been dealing with with this beautiful woman called wisdom, the embodiment of the character and decisions and work of God. And he's been pointing the readers toward Christ as the fulfillment of that. It's not some beautiful woman. It is Jesus. He is wisdom embodied. And now he shifts gears and takes it a whole nother direction. Now he shifts gears to wisdom, paying for sin, Wisdom is too regal for that. What in the world? The Jewish mind would have had such a difficult... That would have been a stumbling block for the Jew. Wisdom doesn't pay for sin. It's the divine switcheroo, is what I'm going to call it. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. Contra-expectations is really what the gospel is all about. And I'm going to show you this. Rome, or, uh, Revelation chapter 4. Did I say Revelation? I did. Okay, good. I want to make sure I didn't say Romans. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are my two favorite chapters in the Bible. In fact, if, I, if any of you, any of the elders are still around, when I go to, see, to be with the Lord, that's what I want priests at my funeral. Those two chapters. They are awesomeness. John, John has is in the middle of this dream-like thing in the book of Revelation, just sort of this truth gumbo is what I've called it. The first three chapters are really pretty linear and make some sense. They're letters to the churches in Revelation, seven specific churches. These letters are written to sort of a report card given to all the churches. And then in chapter 4 and 5, things start to shift into sort of these images. And I want us to take in the contra-expectation of these images. In chapters 4 and 5. Really, any excuse I have to read chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, I'm going to find it. So this is a good excuse. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, John, and I will show you what must take place after this. It doesn't say John, but I'm just reminding you John is sort of the witness here. At once I, John, was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So far, we're we're seeing the Father's throne and the Holy Spirit's all there too. The seven spirits is not some seven spirits floating around. It means the fullness of the Holy Spirit is there in the throne room as well, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. "...around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living critters, full of eyes in in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, they just say it over and over and over again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, we don't know who those were, if they're just some sort of non-human, they seem to be sort of these non-human, wise-thinking creatures. These 24 elders, you just imagine these white, regal, white haired, regal looking dudes fall down before him who's seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Awesome throne room vision of the Father in that picture. Now we get to see the Son. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This scroll that is, is, is sort of the unfolding of the rest of the story, the consummation of the age. The tribulation will unfold as these seals are broken. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, just imagine this question. You got a megaphone or something, an angel megaphone. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then it says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John's bumming. John's like, nobody's worthy. The strong angel asked the question, who's worthy to open the scroll? And there's crickets in heaven. Cricket, cricket, cricket. You hear the shuffling of feet, maybe, as people are kind of looking down, as the elders are looking around, picking up their crown, and kind of sitting there like, we don't know of anybody worthy to open the scroll. The only only thing you hear in the silence is in verse 4, and John begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John's sobbing. I want the rest of this story to unfold, but nobody's worthy to open this scroll. I am broken over it and I'm sobbing. And one of the elders taps John on the shoulder Hey, John, I got good news for you. Weep no more. Behold the lion of Judah. The lion. Just taking that imagery the lion of Judah, like Aslan. I mean, some of you might have that vision of Aslan, this monstrous lion of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You hear that and you go, yeah, man. Now it's time for the heir, the creator, the radiance of the glory of God, the, the imprint of his nature, the exact imprint, that is, and the upholder and sustainer of the universe. Now it's time for him to go open the scroll. The Lion of Judah is in the house. But then there's a contrary expectation. John's thinking, okay, I'm going to turn and see a big, roaring, Aslan-like lion. And he looks over, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as if slain. expectation. Divine switcheroo, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, even Greenville. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbing myriads and myriads as a bunch and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever. Man, contrary expectation. Looking for the Lion of Judah, but then you turn around and you see the Lamb standing as if slain. It sounds like a Lord that's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. It sounds like a Lord that is going to serve his people instead of rule his people by washing their feet. This whole gospel is a contra expectation. I love that the writer of Hebrews takes him to the cosmos and then takes him to ground level and says, yet he made purification for sins. We've got to marvel that he would stoop and take out the trash. It should cause every single one of us to say, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why would you bother? You're so great. Why would you do this for the likes of us? If the former five truths caused you to worship, if the heir creator radiance, exact imprint, and sustainer caused you to worship. This shift into payment for sin should cause in you and create in you a sense of indebtedness. Marveling at the cosmos won't do that to you. It'll create awe. But when you look at the cross, it should and must create a sense of indebtedness where you're just going, man, I'm scratching my head over that. What is man that you are mindful of us? We must respond with nothing less than our lives. It's a contra expectation. Now, let's unpack the two realities. He made purification for sins and he sat down. I want to deal with the word purification and then I want to deal with the cooperating verb. Making or made, having made. Because there's some clues in there that are really going to help you appreciate what's going on here. This word purification was associated with cleansing, and I'm going to read a few passages to you. You're welcome to turn there, but I'm going to be moving pretty fast. Um, To the book of Leviticus chapter 16 is the first one. This word in Greek is sort of a clue to us to go back in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, to sort of understand what's being said here. So we can go back to the Greek Old Testament. There is such a thing. It's called the Septuagint. And we can find some clues as to what he's getting at. A couple of the clues are in Leviticus chapter 16, a chapter on the Day of Atonement. I encourage you as families to read that entire chapter. The whole chapter is about cleansing or purification of God's people. But a couple of things I want you to see specifically. In verse 19, you can listen or if you're already there, you can look at it. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it, that being the altar... With his finger seven times and cleanse it. That's the word that we're looking at over here in Hebrews chapter 1. He will cleanse the altar and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So the altar has to be cleansed. Next page in my Bible in verse 30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. That's the people of Israel, the people of God. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So the altar has to be cleansed, and the people have to be cleansed or purified. Here's the third snapshot, Numbers chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them, sprinkle the water of purification upon them and let them go with a razor over all over their body and wash their clothes and cleanse them. But that, not, that cleansing isn't done. Then let them take a bull from the herd and with its grain offering a fine flour mixed with oil and you shall take another bull from the herd as, or for a sin offering and you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel." When you bring the Levites before the, thro- before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, and they may do the service of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, and you shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement or cleansing for the Levites." And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons and shall offer them as a wave offering to the Lord. Those are just some snapshots of the sort of things that have to be cleansed in order to be with God and sort of to be inhabited by God. The altar has to be cleansed. The people have to be cleansed. Even the priests have to be cleansed. They have to be cleansed specifically from the filth of sin. And in all of these cases, the cleansing was achieved by the blood of a replacement or a substitute. All of these cases, blood is the the detergent that cleanses of sin. Job begged for this type of deliverance or this type of purification. In Job chapter 7 verse 21, listen to this. He says, why do you not pardon my transgression and take away or cleanse my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Job longed for what Christ provided here. What's being referenced here was begged for. Now, dealing with the cooperating verbs, in the ESV, it's brought out as after making. The, the original language, the verb there would be having made, and that too is an aorist tense verb, meaning that it was completed. Having made, purification for sins, means that it was completed. Before he sat down, guess what he did? He finished his work. When he's on the cross and he says, it is finished, that's what he meant, It's finished. He didn't just mean my suffering and my time on the cross. He meant this work is finished forevermore. That's the tense of the verb. Now, the voice of the verb. The voice of the verb is middle voice. Now, unless you're just like super high-speed English person, you probably have no idea what that means. It indicates that the son made payment for sins in himself. A middle voice verb would be like someone doing something to themselves. He groomed himself. The voice of the word groom would be directed at himself. The point here is that after making himself purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The point there is that he made purification for for sins with himself and in himself. He was not only the high priest, the royal priest, making the offering. He is actually the offering itself. He offered himself to cleanse sins. Turn to Exodus chapter 13. A couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night we engage this chapter, and the image of it just really, or the sort of the, <laughs> the details of it sort of came to mind as, we were, as I was preparing this little section of the sermon. So I thought I would read it to you, and we would consider Him making purification for sins. I'm just going to begin in verse 11. I'll give you a little bit of context. God has led His people out of, out of Israel or Egypt by this point. The last plague, the Passover has happened. In the last plague, the firstborn of Egypt dies, not just firstborn humans, but firstborn critters. If you have a puppy who happened to be the firstborn in his litter, he's dead that night on the night that Israel is liberated from Egypt. If you have a cow that happened to be the firstborn, or I guess it would be a calf or a bull, that a male, the firstborn in there, uh, I don't know what you call them. They're not a litter of cows. Brad would know. Heard, (laughs) firstborn in whatever their brood or whatever it is, he's dead too. And here they are on the tail end of Passover. Passover has just happened. And here in chapter 13, verse 11, it says, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, that'll be the promised land. I'm going to take you back to the, the land that I promised to Abraham, the land where Jacob left, the land that Joseph was sold out of. When the Lord brings you into the land land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. So exactly what I did to Egypt is exactly or similar to what I want you to do. As I took their firstborn for their sin, I want to take your firstborn for your sin. Somebody thinks Israel wasn't sinners too? think they were better than Egypt, less sinful than Egypt in some way? All you have to do is watch the rest of the story for Israel, and you find out otherwise. You have to pay for your sin with something too, and it will be your firstborn. And if they're any critter other than humans, and one other thing I'm about to show you, they have to die as well. Sacrifice the firstborn of your puppies, the firstborn of your cows, your brood, The firstborn of whatever critters, your lambs. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn, here's the other critter. Every firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. And when in time to come... Or when, in time to come, your son asks you, What does this mean, Pop? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I, your daddy, sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons, and we could say... And donkeys, if you want to, I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, why did I share that passage? I don't think that you can really enjoy that he made purification for sins till you realize, first of all, that something had to die in order for your cleansing. You got to realize something had to die. In this picture, Israel, the only way you're going to survive now, now that I've delivered you, is something else has to die. And it's going to be your firstborn minus your human firstborn and your donkeys. You also, I don't think, can really enjoy that he made purification for sins till you understand your sinfulness and what we have in common with donkeys. I don't think it's an accident there. The donkeys have a way out, and humans have a way out. Because the reality is, as you study yourself, as you hold this Bible up to you as a mirror that shows you who you truly, truly are, you start to see yourself as looking pretty similar to a donkey. Israel was a stiff-necked people, hard to lead. That's our story, too. If you have no view of your filth, you can't appreciate the one who cleaned it up. If you have no view and no understanding of your feebleness, if you don't realize that he had to stoop to get you, if you don't realize your sinfulness, that he stooped and was sacrificed for you, you can't enjoy him as a savior. I love that he gave away out for the donkeys. A.W. Pink loves it too or loved it. He said this, he said, thank God for the lamb provided for the donkey. The more fully we realize the accuracy of this figure, the more completely we are given to see how donkey like we are in ourselves. The deeper will be our gratitude and the more fervent our praise for the redemptive and the perfect. I'm going to tell you right now, a church that's characterized by knowing that you're a bunch of donkeys saved by grace is an attractive church. A Christian family that realizes and has in view your filth and your ret- wretchedness apart from Christ, that's attractive. It's haughtiness and pride. I don't know why. Humility decays. And after we've been Christian 10, 20, 30 years, sometimes you start forgetting or you just forget. Well, wait a second. I'm a donkey. I needed that image. Man, I too am stiff-necked. I have a keen view or I must have a keen view of my own filth to realize how low grace reached to pick up the likes of me. I'm going to tell you what, that church attractive. That church is attractive. We realize who he stooped for <laughs> and the character of who he stooped for. How could we not listen to this one? How could we not listen to this one who so surprised us and lavished on us a bunch of donkeys, blessings, he is our Redeemer, having cleansed us with the offering of Himself. The second thing, really the crescendo, I would say, of the seven things that we've learned about Christ is the last thing. He sat down. The first six things work toward and point toward the seventh. He is um, heir, creator, creator. Radiance of the glory of God. Exact imprint of his nature. Upholder or sustainer. He is redeemer. All of those six things point to him now being ruler. Seated and ruling. He sat down. A parking place for that image is an old-fashioned word called session. He is in session. Seated. You can see, too, from the order that's brought out in the ESV, after he made purification for sins, he sat down. For there's no sitting down until the former's completed. Payment for sins is what gives him that rightful place at the Father's right hand. Seated. I wish that I had had some opportunity to see what it would have been like for an emperor general to go out and vanquish the enemy and then to come home. I've imagined the fanfare of this general coming home. We could just say it's General Maximus had he not been uh, betrayed, maybe from one of his earlier battles. Coming home to great fanfare and parades, and then as everybody's watching and cheering, going up to a throne A place of honor. And sitting down. I just can't imagine that everybody wouldn't just cheer seeing the victor seated. Seeing the battle complete. The enemy vanquished. Hearing the swish of the robe. The shuffle of pierced feet in Christ's case. And the strong exhale of a faithful and mighty warrior priest. As we see him in our mind's eye. Seated. We need to hear the words, it is finished. (sighs) The warrior priest is seated, trounced the enemy, contra expectatively, with a cross. The enemy is trounced with a cross. Turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Context. Christ has been arrested. And they're leading him from court, unlawful court to unlawful court. He's beaten, ridiculed, mocked. This is one of those settings, verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. Don't you know they were sitting down? Don't you know they were sitting, this council was seated in what they perceived to be the places of honor and the places of judgment and the places of power and decision, and they led him away to their council. And they said, as they're sitting on their behinds, if you are the Christ, tell us. He said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Watch what he says next. But from now on, based on what's about to happen, the Son of Man shall be seated, At the right hand. You know Christ was standing here. Christ wouldn't have been sitting down before the council. He's standing. If he could stand. The irony. The contra expectation of the one in whom all things is held together is standing. And they're sitting on their created behinds. He says, now on the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. He applied this Psalm 110 to himself hours before he went to the cross. Enemies are about to be vanquished. The victor is about to trounce the enemy with the cross. It's a contra-expectation. The Hebrews writer and preacher takes his people to this image. And it's important to see him as ruler and to remember what he did to get there via the cross. Lastly, in regards to him being seated, I want to consider just the fact that he is indeed seated. There's greatness in this contrast to the other priest. The last passage I want you to look at which is just really poetic is Hebrews chapter 10. Turn there. <clears throat> this will explain the ridiculous looking shoe on our song slides and on your bulletin cover this morning. Looks like a shoe that either Chad or Samantha would wear. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Clint Stevens even Possibly. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. This is just, I love this. And every priest, watch, stands. Every priest stands daily at his service Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday, I don't know what exactly they did on Saturday. I know it's their Sabbath. I haven't studied what a priest did on the Sabbath. Sunday, is standing. You know, I looked at the furniture in the tabernacle and the temple, the list of the things that are supposed to be in there, and I didn't see a recliner. I didn't see a futon. I didn't see one of those little love couches. I looked everywhere. I didn't see anything in there. I don't see any place for this homeboy to to sit down. He just stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. I'm looking at it saying, man, homeboy better have some good shoes. When I was a kid growing up, my dad's a veterinarian, so I, I spent a lot of time at the clinic, working at the clinic and. It's, it's a medical environment, all, even though it's critters, it's still a medical environment, and you wear scrubs, and the vet techs dress like a nurse might dress, and they're on their feet all day. And I remember as a little kid looking at the shoes that these ladies wore, and they were, they were called familaris, and it was the rage, man. Familaris. They had wait, I bet you never has a pair. Wavy bottom shoes, They had a wavy bottom on a a bottom, and I guess the waves sort of absorbed the shock of standing all day. And I'm sitting here, something just made me laugh. Envisioning a priest wearing all his garb, his linen clothing, and his ephod, and all that. And out underneath the robe, as it kind of moves away as he's walking, a pair of familaris. He better have some good shoes. Because homeboy's going to be standing all day long offering the same sacrifices repeatedly, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Kick your feet up, Jesus. Put them on the nations. Take your shoes off. You rest from your work because it was perfect. It was final. No need for sacrifices to be offered every day. Jesus, you take your seat. His feet didn't hurt at all. Priest is at home, Mrs. Priest having to rub his feet every night. Jesus' feet didn't hurt at all because he's seated. I was thinking about this picture, this reality of him being seated and being our ruler and this desire for the Hebrews writer and preacher to put that in front of the people that are on the receiving end, the people that he likely pastored. I want you to see Christ as seated as the ruler. And I thought, man, how often do we replace Christ with a functional ruler? How badly do we need to see this image of Christ seated How many things do we put in that seat? We either say, Jesus, move over. I want to put my work there. I have to. My boss, he's pretty heavy-handed. And if I don't obey him, if I don't work eight days out of the week, if I don't put in 80 hours a week, I'll lose my job, Jesus. You need to move over a little bit. In fact, maybe you should just get down out of that throne, and I'm going to enthrone my work. Or I'm going to enthrone a relationship. I'm going to put that in that seat. Or I'm going to put a besetting sin in that seat because it rules me, God. I'm just telling you, I know that it doesn't, but in reality, functionally, it does. I'm owned by this besetting sin, so I'm just going to put it right there in that seat. And I'm going to live like it's my ruler. We need this image of seeing Christ sitting on that throne. We need this image of seeing his feet kicked up, resting on the nations. We need this image to realize he's victor. We're not owned by the office. When I say it's a functional ruler, when you have this decision, you're like, well, my family needs me, my people that I'm walking with, my church, I need to be involved, I need to be engaging them. But then I've got this work situation that just, you know, it's just hard. And it just functionally, it's just taking up all my time where this is being sacrificed. Go ahead and admit it. This is on the throne. And I I realize you might say, dude, you got this cushy job. You don't even have to get dressed in the morning we flip-flops, sitting in a recliner all day. You're gonna get paid. It hadn't always been that way. Christy and I moved here on a dream. <laughs> it hadn't always been that way, guys. You need to know that. It's not cushy right now. There's some Sundays, or it's happened before, it's been some time now, because y'all are being faithful, but there have been some Sundays where the day before we got or on Friday, we were written a check, our paycheck where our secretary, this is Biola at this time, she said, now don't cash it on Monday because I don't know if, you'll, if it'll be good. If you're thinking, man, I could lose my job, it's easy for you to say, no, I'm saying this from experience. We both are in this situation where we have to trust him by faith and see him on the throne, not as this job on the throne. If a job is causing you to sacrifice your family, then you need to find another job. Or you need to tell your boss, I will not sacrifice my family, and I will not sacrifice walking with God's people for this job. I will find another job. Yes, even in this economy. I will trust my Jesus that he will not let us go hungry. And I will trust my church that my church will not let me go hungry either. We're good at putting functional rulers right up there in that place. And I've seen us do it at times. I'm sure I do it at times. And these functional rulers, they're homely, and they're ridiculous. But we push Jesus over and say, have a seat. A diagnosis from the doctor, that's going to be my ruler now, and that's going to determine how I function in life. I got this diagnosis. That's now the ruler, a functional ruler Hebrews need to be reminded of this and we need to be reminded of this. They feared persecution and they hunkered down behind the Roman or behind doors fearing the Roman throne. And the writer of Hebrews says, let me tell you who's really on the throne. Nero is on the throne by permission. Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty in the highest of heights because he's finished the work. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for these images and these realities of seeing Christ, number six and number seven, seeing him very finished and seeing him very seated. I'm thankful for this image of him having a footstool. In contrast to the priest who has achy feet. Lord, I needed to see Christ on this throne and be reminded of that. We needed to be reminded of that. I pray that our lives reflect His rule and His reign and not some other functional ruler. I pray this by Your grace and mercy that You'll work this in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to have the Lord's Supper now, and I want to uh, just remind you of those seven realities of Christ as we take the supper. He is heir. He's creator. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the sustainer, the one in whom all things are held together. And he is redeemer. He purified us of our sins. And he is ruler. Those last two are taken together, they have to be taken together. He earned that spot at the Father's right hand at the cross. We need to remember these first five things and the lofty ruler of the cosmos, but we need to remember these last two things, especially number six, that he stooped to pick up the trash. As we take the Lord's Supper together, that's what I want us to have on our minds, that he stooped to clean up our trash. And he did it with a cross. And we're going to remember that now. He is a worthy prophet. Having spoken the final word, he's qualified priest, having made the final sacrifice in himself and with himself to cleanse us of sins. And he is king sitting enthroned in the place of honor next to the Father's right hand. Lastly, I'll tell you too that this meal is for those that are enjoying him by faith. If you're not trusting Christ as, this, as your Lord, as your ruler, don't take the supper. If you're in some place where you're thumbing your nose at God over one thing or another, don't take the supper then either. And don't let it go week after week. You need to square up and reconcile with God. Confess your sins and confess them one to another. Be healed and race to this supper. But if you're in one of those two places this morning thumbing your your nose at God over some unrepentant sin, or you're not a believer, don't take the supper. If you are, then take it by faith, remembering and enjoying. Number six is cleaning up our trash. Let's eat. You know, the fact that Jesus isn't wearing familaris means you don't either. As we take the bread, I want you to consider that your work in regards to salvation is over as well. You may work in response. In fact, you should. It's an appropriate response to be spent. But when it comes to salvation, you didn't earn it. He earned it, and it's been purchased, period. Let's take and eat. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or payment for sins. As we take this, let's remember and enjoy that payment was paid in full. Our sins were covered and cleansed through the finished work of Christ. Let's take and drink. Let's continue in song and giving. I always replay a sermon like that, especially some of the things that I've said over and over again, hoping and praying that they're received in context and received in the spirit that they were intended. Like things having to do with your job. I mean, I I'm hoping y'all don't all go tell your bosses to take that job, you know? That's, that wasn't the point. The point is that Jesus is on that throne. So, a lot of the things that really influence us and really drive us and say, we know I'm bound to that. I have to do it this way. You really don't. And while you might in your mind and even in your heart say, well, Jesus is Lord, He's on that throne you may functionally show something else. As Christ is the ultimate contra-expectation, we are contra-expectations. Our lives are a contra-expectation. That's what makes us aromatic. That's what makes us salty and bright in a world that's not a contra-expectation. If you're in a work environment where you're seeing your family sacrificed on the altar of work, are you're like, no, I just have to work a bunch of overtime to maintain our cost of living. If you go make some changes, like sell something so that your cost of living decreases and it's in keeping with a reasonable job, that's salt. There's an aroma there. And the world looks at it and says, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, we're supposed to amass stuff, and that's the American dream. And you're like, well, I'm not living by the American dream. I'm living by Jesus being on the throne. He's my ruler, not my cost of living or my perceived cost of living, standard of living might be the better word. Or if you're in an environment where your boss is saying, you've got to work this this much or you're canned. And you say, well, look, boss, I go thus far and no further. I will be all there in this setting. And I realize there's a row of people behind me that will say, I'll take it. You say, no, I'm going to put Christ on that throne. And he's going to rule, not the perceived fear of not having a job and not being able to feed my family. Just know that when you do that, that's called worship. That's what worship is. When your life comes into alignment with what this word says about who Jesus is and what he's done, that's worship. When it doesn't, it's faithlessness. You can come to church on Sunday that's great, but if those sort of decisions in those real-life moments that have shoes on, I mean, real events, where you're looking someone in the face and you're looking at a checking account or whatever, when you make decisions where this modifies that and where his rule becomes paramount and first primary to that, that's worship. And other people smell it. And they're like, man, that's a contrary expectation. Something's going on right there. Tell me about it. When we look just like the world, that's not, a con, that's not reflecting the greatness of Christ. So I encourage you. I, listen, again, I'm not telling you to everybody go uh, quit their jobs and, or tell their boss to take it, take their job. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying let these sort of truths impact how you live. That was the problem with the Hebrew church. They stopped listening. And they may have kept hearing it, but listening meaning that it didn't find purchase. It didn't, it didn't find expression. So that's where the Hebrew writer took them, and that's where God, through His sovereignty, is taking us right now. These sort of truths have to modify and impact and influence how we live. Are there just truths? But just thoughts, but it's worship if they do. If you need help walking through that, those sort of decisions or talking through that, I encourage you to talk with your small group shepherd, to talk with a deacon. Who are some of our deacons that are in here? Deacons stand, please, and small group shepherds. Deacons, small group shepherds men all in this sanctuary that you can go to or you can go to any of the elders. Steve, Steve, you saw him passing out uh, the elements. You saw Brad passing out the elements. Scott's not here this morning, uh, but I'm available. Man, don't try and go this alone. Men, y'all can sit, thanks. Don't try and go this alone. You're not going to have somebody trying to tell you how to run your life, but you will have somebody who picks up God's word and says, okay, let's see what God says here. And I'll pray with you and for you as you endeavor to walk in that truth. That's what the people of God is all about. I encourage you to connect with one of these men or connect with an elder. Our contact uh, email addresses are on the back of the bulletin so you can email any of the elders, ideally all the other elders, because I'm off studying. Just kidding. No, I'm I'm available too, so y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. The other elders are studying too, by the way. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for our time together this morning. I'm thankful for truths that cause us to examine our lives and examine our priorities and our pursuits. Lord, I'm thankful for a Lord that's worth um, not only examining our lives, but modifying and changing our lives to where we can enjoy Him better and more. I pray that we will be walking contrary expectations as Christ is the ultimate contrary expectation and that in so doing we'll be salty and bright and aromatic and we'll bring glory to you for your glory. I pray for opportunities to talk through some of these things that they'll find real purchase and they won't just be left right here on Sunday morning but they'll invade Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and den and neighborhood or coffee shop a small group, that they'll be processed and discussed and that they'll find purchase for your glory. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for our Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.